Thank you for joining us for Sound Reasoning with Christian apologist and minister Perseus Poku of Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's program will educate, train, and empower you to defend your Christian faith with confidence. Perseus has his bachelor's in history and a master's degree in apologetics. We hope you enjoy this time of equipping so that you can answer questions to defend your Christian faith effectively. Now here's Perseus Poku on Sound Reasoning. Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I'm your host, Perseus Poku. On today's episode, I wanted to remind our listeners of 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter states, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be you always ready to give each man a woman an answer or reason for the hope that lies within you, and we do it with gentleness and respect. So this scripture is not, not only descriptive, but it's prescriptive. And it doesn't matter what field you're in. You could be a lawyer, a janitor. Uh, you could engage in customer service. You could be a chef, a teacher, a professor. Regardless of where the Lord has called you, we are to train ourselves to give each man and woman a response, each boy and girl a response, a reason for the hope that lies within us. So we need to be able to answer the why, the who, what, when, where, as it pertains to Christianity. In today's uh, segment, I wanted us to uh, highlight the area of the sciences. Uh, There are skeptics and there are those uh, around us, those that are in the classrooms that our children go to, that believe that as Christians, uh, we must separate our faith from our reason, and that reason and faith are incompatible. But on today's episode, uh, we have the distinct pleasure of a special guest. His name is Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, and he received his Ph.D. in cell and development, developmental biology from Harvard Medical School. And he's also currently a research associate with the Institute for Creation Research. Uh, Dr. Jensen, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on the program. Thank you for being on Sound Reasoning. And my first question is, uh, you did research in terms of uh, evolution in uh, Darwin's uh, work. And my question to you is, just for the betterment and the edification of our listeners, who was uh, Charles Darwin? Darwin was a guy in the 1800s who was interested in origins. He was engaging the, the views of origins in the church at that time. The views, I think, were flawed. And so he had a, a rather easy target. But his his central thesis that he laid out in his book on the origin of species tried to advance the view that God did not create species. He didn't even create a, a few progenitors from which species came, but that all species descended from a, a few ancestors, which means that humans didn't come from Adam and Eve. They came from the apes and ultimately from some rock billions of years ago. So in your estimation, did this conclusion from Dorn, was it, uh, was it based on his a priori view or uh, from the objective facts that he deduced? If you read The Origin of Species, Darwin has a really clever argument, and it's been, it's been really interesting just to see how he lays it out. Some of the, the modern arguments for evolution are somewhat far afield from the ones he laid out, but he did a really good job trying to combat the views of his day, but looking at from, from a modern perspective, from modern science, we can see all sorts of holes that uh, he probably should have seen then, and then, with, of course, with modern discoveries, we can see even bigger ones now. So 
in, I, I've read that he Darwin, uh, Charles Darwin, was a naturalist. What, what does that mean? So he studied the natural world. He took a voyage on the Beagle. One of the sites that influenced him heavily was the Galapagos Islands. There have been a lot of studies on the Galapagos and the species, plants and animals on those islands and how they've changed over time. So he's he's looking at the natural world, trying to understand it, and and as a priority for him, try to understand how the natural world came to be. Okay. And from your previous statement, you were saying that he already had this worldview that God was not in the picture as he was studying the Galapagos Island. He was he was pretty clever in his book. At the end of it, he he hints that well maybe God breathed some life into these initial forms, maybe the first cells or the first progenitors, millions or billions of years ago. But effectively, what his view does is remove God from any active involvement in the world, and especially any active involvement in origins. So to embrace evolution. At best, you, impl- you embrace a very different God from Christianity, and in many cases, you reject them altogether. So it sounds very much like uh, deism uh, from the way that you just characterize it, uh, in a sense that uh, it's agreed that God created the earth, but then he just left us to run the show. Effectively, that's, I think, what it boils down to. Some of the, the modern theistic evolutionists, or they'll call themselves evolutionary creationists, so these are people who profess Christ but say that God used evolution, they'll use terms like, well, evolution is the means of God's providence, which uh, makes it sound like, well, providence, that's a good thing, that's a good theological concept, when in fact it really is a deistic view. That when, the, when an evolutionist goes out to the field to study a fossil or goes to the lab to study some genetics, he, he or she is not trying to understand what God is doing. They're looking for natural explanations for how things operate, and more importantly, how things came to be. So it, it's a practical sort of deism, regardless of what label people put on it today. Thank you so much. And as I was reading um, an excerpt from uh, something you wrote, uh, I'm not sure when you wrote it, but it was dealing with Darwinism and um, his work. And there were four points that you outlined. I realize we only have a few minutes on this show, but you talked about the uh, relative genetic similarities, as well as the absolute genetics, uh, the junk DNA, and the shared DNA mistakes. So my question to you is, what does modern science show us in regards to Darwin's claims? That's a, that's a great question. So I'm going to be giving a talk in a few weeks at the Southern Evangelical Seminary National Apologetics Conference and on, on the topic of genetics. And one of the first questions people often have is, what, what does genetics have to do with evolution or with origins? Right. And in fact, uh, it's, it's intimately connected in at least four ways. So of course the title of Darwin's book, On the Origin of Species, means he's trying to explain where species come from, how they came to be. And that, at its core, is a genetic question. Why is that? Well, we can see, well, zebras produce zebras, giraffes produce giraffes. There's something that's inherited. So those traits that define these creatures around the planet, that, that has to do with inheritance. So we're, we're dealing with a genetic question. Of course, his hypothesis that all of life is related, that's a, that's a genealogical hypothesis, which means it's also a genetic hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And the mechanism he proposed, natural selection, only works if the fittest, so natural selection is basically survival of the fittest, it only works if the fittest then pass on those important traits 
or features to offspring. So genetics is at the core of, of how Darwin's supposed to work. And what's, what many people don't know and what I find incredibly fascinating, that this idea of genetics at the core of evolution, at the core of the origin of species, Darwin admits in his book that of the ignorance of the law, he, he says our ignorance of the laws of variation is profound. That's a direct quote from the first edition. So genetics, the core of evolution, is something Darwin freely admitted he didn't understand in 1859. And, of course, we've come a, a very long way from the, the primitive understanding people had of that back then. That, so, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You, uh, continue. So I was going to say that's, that's the relevance of genetics to this origins topic. It's at the core of evolution, and it's highly uh, high time we looked into it just because Darwin admitted ignorance, and we've, we've gathered an enormous amount of genetic data since Darwin, and particularly in the last two decades or so as DNA information has accumulated more and more in public databases. And so people like me, uh, even without, let's say, government grants, can go to these public sites, get, get genetic information, and start doing comparisons that test Darwin's hypothesis afresh at the very, in, in the very field where it needs to be tested, that is genetics. Thank you. So in terms of the uh, data that's available to us based on modern science and based on modern research, where are we in terms of the tide of those who hold on to uh, evolutionary views? It seems like the evidence is leaning towards uh, more of a theistic worldview than an evolutionary worldview. Yes. The evolutionists have, have tried to capitalize on this large amount of new genetic information to argue for evolution. For example, you may have heard the claim that we're 98 or 99% genetically similar to a chimpanzee. Right. Which, if you look at the data published in the paper, and one of my colleagues, Jeff Tompkins, has, has done his own reanalysis of the raw data, the math only adds up to about 70% identity. Practically speaking, that means, if you, if you think of DNA as sort of like a, a chemical alphabet with four letters, there's three billion letters in our DNA sequence and the human DNA sequence, about roughly the same as the chimpanzee. Well, there's 900 million DNA letter differences between us and the chimpanzee. And that sounds and feels a lot different than 98%. So they've, the evolutionists have definitely been trying to capitalize on these new findings, but the more we look into them, the more it's underscoring the biblical account, underscoring deep divisions in nature, and underscoring... Uh, findings that don't match up with evolutionary predictions. Okay, thank you for that explanation. And my next question uh, deals with those that may be listening to our show. Uh, we have Dr. Nathaniel Jensen from the uh, ICUR Institute of Creation Research, and he's sharing with us his uh, research data on Darwin and his work. And Dr. Jensen, the next question that I have is, what are the ramifications of holding on to an evolutionary worldview. Uh, uh, there are uh, some people listening to us right now who may be saying, so what's the big deal? Uh, we, we, we are Christians. They believe in evolution. Uh, so why should we even be concerned with uh, Darwin and his work? That's a, that's a really important point. So evolution, in, in its many aspects, directly contradicts the Genesis account. If you read Genesis account, in Genesis 1, God speaks, the universe re responds, he says, let there be light, and there's light. Evolution operates not by some supreme being 
speaking things into existence. Rather, it operates by survival of the fittest. Death and destruction is the, the means of progress. So evolution contradicts the mechanism of gen- Genesis. It contradicts the time of Genesis, millions of years versus thousands of years. It contradicts the order of Genesis. The order of creation is different than the order of evolutionary appearance. And I think perhaps most bothersome is the fact that it contradicts the God of Genesis. If you try to harmonize evolution with the text of Scripture, you get a God that's very different. God, if he used evolution, uses death as a good thing. I mean, over and over again, Genesis 1 says God created, and it was good. And if the good means that God killed off some and slaughtered others to make way for others, that that gives you a very different God. If he had to try again and didn't work out and survival of the fittest, is he really omnipotent? Is he omnipresent? It, it calls into question the very fundamental aspects of God that we've cherished and held as, as uh, doctrine and, and cardinal doctrines for so many years. So it's a, it's a direct attack on the text of Genesis, which of course then raises the question, what's, what's, the, rem- what, what, what's the value of that? I mean, can, can we do without Genesis? Maybe we should fight about the gospel. And that's, I think, where the importance of Genesis really shines, that the fundamental doctrines of Scripture are laid down there. The Gospel is promised, Genesis 3.15, when God confronts the serpent, he says, I'm going to, he himself, the offspring of the woman, is going to crush the serpent's head. And that, that promise is fulfilled, we can see in the genealogies of Genesis 5, Genesis 11. Matthew picks up on that, traces it down to Christ. There are so many important truths of Scripture that explode in the New Testament, that begin in those opening chapters of Genesis. So, Evolution attacks those those first eleven chapters, and we really we really can't do without them if we want to hold to a consistent Christianity. And how does that embrace of evolution uh, impact us as Christian parents? It has a it can have a really big impact and a really subtle impact at the same time. So most people probably don't think about evolution day to day, but kids go off to school, they're going to learn in science classroom, they're going to get taught evolution. And it seems to be they're taught the essence of evolution earlier and earlier. Right. Perhaps, you know, years ago it was high school, now it's junior high, you're getting some aspects of evolution, being prepared for it. And of course, you go off to college, you'll get it full-blown in Biology 101 or 102. That's the, that's the core teaching anytime you get to species and how you classify species. And there's been a real effort in recent years to make evolution the center of the life sciences curriculum. So it's really an issue that no one can escape if they're in any sort of public school. Thank you. Now, my next question is, what is the difference between micro versus macro evolution? A a really important point. Thanks for bringing that up. So the two terms, microevolution, macroevolution, sometimes confuse people. Evolutionists use them. Creationists have used them. In general, macroevolution refers to the big picture that Darwin was talking about in his book, The Origin of Species, basically that all life traces to a common ancestor, that humans are related to primates, and primates are related to all the rest of the mammals, that all mammals share a common ancestor with amphibians and reptiles and fish, and all those, if you go deeper back, go further back in time, share a common ancestor with insects and the like. That's the, that's the big picture macroevolution. Microevolution usually is defined as small changes. That's a relative term, but in, in practical, more quantitative sense, that's 
perhaps something you might see in the Galapagos Islands. So Peter and Rosemary Grant from Princeton have studied a particular species of finch on the Galapagos Islands and traced how their beak has changed over time in response to environmental changes in the last 30, 40 years. They're still finches. They haven't evolved into fish or anything, even not even into a new species, really. So that's really all we ever see. So there's a there's a there's a couple different aspects of this distinction. Macroevolution is the big picture. Microevolutions is the is the small picture. Microevolution is all we can ever see with our with our own eyes. And if science is defined by observation, really the only evolution that's scientific is microevolution. And that's very different from what Darwin was articulating in on the origin of species. And microevolution secondarily, is also consistent with Scripture. So Scripture doesn't say that change is forbidden or that species can't form. What it does say is that God created different kinds of creatures, and that's very different from saying that God created a single creature that then evolved over millions of years into everything we see today. So microevolution is scientific. It's what we can see with our own eyes. It's what we study in the field. Macroevolution is really rampant speculation made from a, a few observations in the present. One's scientific, one's not. One is at the core of evolution. One is just uh, sort of ancillary to it and, and part of both creation and evolution. So I just want to make sure that I fully understand what you're saying. So microevolution uh, sounds like there's a change within the same species, whereas macroevolution seems like they're arguing that there is uh, an evolving process from one species changing into another species. Good, good clarification. So, microevolution, I'd say, is probably change within a family. Mm-hmm. And so, biblically, I, I get at that conclusion. I look at Genesis six. God tells Noah to take two of every kind of creature on board the ark, male and female, for the purpose of producing offspring after the flood is finished. And if you do breeding studies, let's say cats. Uh, lions and tigers are classified as separate species, even though on occasion they can breed. Uh, pumas can breed with some of the larger cats. Puma, I think, can also is documented to breed with an ocelot. Ocelot can breed with some of the smaller cats. And all 36 species of cats in the family Felidae seem like they can be connected reproductively. Mm-hmm. So my guess is Noah took two cat-like creatures on board the ark, and after the flood, these 36 species formed uh, in, in the last 4,000, 5,000 years. So I'd say microevolution is, is probably change within a family, and we never see any change beyond that. We've never seen one family change into another family. And once, once you get beyond that, then you're getting to the realm of macroevolution and the type of change that Darwin was proposing. So I think new species can form. I think Scripture allows for that, but I don't think we ever, I don't think Scripture allows for one family changing into another family. As a, as a general rule of thumb, and we definitely never observe that in nature. So that leads me to my um, final question, and that is we often visit museums and we take our children on field trips, and we see uh, these fossils that look like uh, an ape has become a man. My question to you, based on your research, have they discovered any transitional fossils? That's a, that's a great question. If you go to museums, you'll see all sorts of reconstructions of half-ape, half-man, very lifelike 
realistic-looking depictions. If you dig down and say, what is the fossil evidence behind it, you get a totally different picture. Every fossil we've found to date is either obviously ape, obviously human, or there's not enough evidence. And there's plenty of examples that fall into that third category of not enough evidence. And the evolutionists have a long history of spinning all sorts of pictures and images from hardly any fossil evidence. One of my favorite stories along these lines is I have a, a colleague in Australia who is an evolutionist, and in 2009, uh, one of these supposed ape-like human ancestors was published. Artipithecus was the name. And so he sent me the table of contents gleefully as if to say, see, look, we, we found a transitional form. Well, I took one look at the fossils, and you look at the, the foot bones. So chimpanzees, the great apes, have, have foot bones that look kind of like a hand because they, they can swing through the trees that way. They can grasp with their feet, whereas our feet have a big toe that's built for walking upright. Well, you look at that foot of the Artipithecus skeleton, and it's got a hand-like foot. So I fired back. It looks like an extinct ape. And his response, he didn't dispute it. He just said, well, at least we have the genetic data. <laughs> so it doesn't, even, it doesn't even take a Ph.D. To, to see that once you get the real evidence, there's, there's nothing behind it. There's, there's, it's, a, it's a bunch of storytelling. So those museum depictions are an enormous amount of imagination and very little evidence. Dr. Jameson, thank you so much for sharing with our listeners and uh, offering your wealth of information on this uh, scientific field, especially in, in uh, the area of evolution. And, and we thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Prayerfully, we can connect again, but we will be praying for you for the conference at SES. Thanks so much, Perseus. Again, that was Dr. Nathaniel Jameson. Um, he is a researcher for the Institute of Creation Research, and we thank him for being on the show. And for you, all of our listeners, we hope you were edified, and we pray that you consider becoming a financial sponsor of this show as we endeavor to stay on air and do the Lord's work. Thank you again for listening to Sound Reasoning. Hopefully we are able to share with you on the next episode. Have a blessed day, and may the Lord be with you. Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1.9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy message as has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org. What do you do when the world around you is falling apart? It's amazing to me how many people are breathing air. They're going about their business and doing the things you're supposed to do. But if you really ask them, they know that on the inside, they are spiritually and emotionally and relationally dead. If we're not careful, all of us can experience that death. When what we need to do, even as the world around us is falling apart, we need to learn how to march when it would be easier to stay where we are and die. Join me each week on the March or Die show as we discuss that and so much more.